2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is JobSolete, where we talk about jobs that are no longer jobs. This week, we're learning about an old job that may seem surprisingly easy. You might be risking your soul, but still, you get money for eating people's sins. Today, we're looking at sin eaters.
4: Coming up. Why we call it scapegoating
3: marionettes, tarnished souls, sinful bread,
4: soul cakes,
3: finally a job Matt's never heard of,
4: and trick-or-treating. So, Helen, before we begin, what do you know about sins and sin-eating? Sins. I've had my fair share, I'm sure.
3: But (laughs) (laughs) sin-eating, I actually, weirdly enough, have heard of this job before because a very creative friend of mine named Paul Kloss did a short film years ago with like marionette puppets. It was a very cool short film. And the film, the name of the film was in the house of the sin eater. And before I, this short film, I had never heard of this profession. I didn't know anything about it, but I watched this film and using marionettes I discovered that There was a job that when someone died, you would put a loaf of bread on the body, and the bread magically absorbed this dead person's sins, and then someone would eat that bread and take on that person's sins. And I was like, what? This is such an archaic, old, feudalistic, medieval (laughs) times situation. It's. It, I'm fascinated by it.
4: Definitely, yeah. I have a Catholic upbringing. I have lots of family that are diehard Catholics. And of course, I'm very familiar with sins and the concept of hell and purgatory, where your souls go to purgatory and hope to get to heaven after you die. Yeah, that. I guess this isn't too far-fetched for me, like knowing what I know about Roman Catholicism. However... I had never heard of sin-eating before researching for this episode, and I, too, am fascinated by this.
3: If you think about it, it, it related into you take the body of Christ when you take communion, right? Like you eat a piece of bread, essentially, that is supposed to help absolve you of sin. So it's an extension of that, right? Only it's like turbocharging it. It's, I'm going to take all my sins, and sh- you know, after I'm dead, I'm going to shove it into this huge loaf of bread, and you eat it.
4: And Catholics do believe that bread is literally Christ. And so this isn't too far-fetched when you really think about it. And we're not talking about uh, just Catholics here. We're talking about many Protestants. Apparently this profession had pagan roots. So we'll get Ah. into that later.
3: Okay, are you guys ready? If so, let's hop in the job time machine back to the 1700s. I'm sorry if you guys think it's corny, but me and Matt, this is like the highlight of our week is doing the sound effects for the time machine. <laughs> so we're going back to the 1700s, the heyday
4: of sin-eating. Let's look at the qualifications of sin-eating. Well, there really weren't that many. (laughs) Pretty pretty much anybody who wanted to do it could do it. It didn't pay well. Most sin-eaters were kind of loners. Some of them were beggars, alcoholics. I would say that you had to be either brave or foolish, maybe. Or maybe someone who just didn't care about your soul being heavy with sins.
3: That makes a lot of sense because taking on someone else's sins, you're either going to be completely sinless, which the church has taught us nobody is sinless. So then you must be desperate for money or for food, even the food that they would give you that had the sins in it. You're like, hey, man, I'm starving. It's If it's bread, even if it's chock full of sin, I'm eating it.
4: Well, we've got Natalie Zarelli as our guest to fill us in with more about these qualifications, Natalie stumbled across this rare occupation and was so intrigued by it that she did some research about sin eating and wrote a fantastic article about it for Atlas Obscura.
5: So it's really difficult from physical evidence and from historical records to, with certainty, put a lot of this together. They were perhaps extremely poor. Um, A lot of the time... It's hard to say exactly how they became sin eaters but they were people who at least at the time of sin eating they were not considered socially acceptable so there was sort of a place for them to be part of society in that sense and it was a benefit in a small way for them to say get fed for the day for one of the maybe many funerals that happened in that day or week um, and so they were fulfilling these sort of roles that were probably passively assigned. They weren't necessarily um, part of some grand design where somebody had a, you know, there wasn't like a, a town mayor that said, okay, we're, we need to make sure we have a sin eater. <laughs> um, but more that it's probably fulfilled. You know, we need somebody's willing to do it, and another person needs it. There. A lot of the descriptions and accounts that exist, say, in an old encyclopedia describing the practice in the 1800s, for example, they refer to the sin eater as him. But I'm not sure that it's really recorded whether there were co-ed sin eaters. It seems like it might have been a male profession, but it's hard to say.
3: Wow, that's so interesting. So if you're desperate for money a beggar you could actually eat by going from funeral to funeral and just being like hey you got any sins for me to eat
4: yeah desperate (laughs) does seem to be the word that stands out and it's sad and there's a lot of conjecture here too you can already tell natalie talking about this that she's very careful because there's a lot we don't know about this occupation we have very little evidence so just the listener you listening right now should know that we don't have like tons of information on this. One of the things that stands out to me with this job is that they are literally becoming more evil as they're performing their task. Now, this is the belief, of course. I'm not saying that all of this is true or not, but they believe that as e- eating the sins, oh, this person is like becoming more evil right before our eyes. This so.
3: clearly is like a European Catholic. Doesn't it sound like kind of medieval European Catholicism situation? I, I would be surprised if there were sin eaters in the Buddhist tradition. Yeah. <laughs> or like Taoism. There's no sin eating in Taoism. This is clearly like Christian slash Catholic in Europe because back then they were trying all kinds of things to to try to get out of sins, right? Like there was a lot of stuff to try to get into God's good good graces.
4: Definitely. We'll get in more we'll get more into the context later on in the show, but I will say that it did have pagan roots as ah. well.
3: So what kind of skills did you need to have, Matt, to become a sin eater?
4: The first thing I thought of was no fear of God, but Natalie has a bit better information here
5: was not considered a good job I mean it might have been considered a necessary job interestingly but it was not not considered a job that you would want to aspire to in the United Kingdom at least have they tended not to have a lot of prestige associated with them they were necessary but they were sort of be, theoretically below a lot of um, other people in the society even among the same sort of wage earners in their peer group in that sense so they a lot of the customs that arise around the, you know a lot of the customs that arise around the dead and trying to put you know the souls of loved ones to rest unless it was a member of the clergy It was really seen as a profession that you didn't want to have yourself but you absolutely needed to have and one thing that I one information bit that I came across is that a lot of the time it looks like maybe sin eaters were brought in for people who died very suddenly so they didn't have their last rites read to them by a priest and they didn't get that sort of closure or that last sort of making right with God so that they could confess. And even among non-Catholics, the sin eaters sometimes may have taken some kind of confession from people at the funeral. Um, So they may have also played a role in that sense. But so as however necessary they were though, it was seen as kind of dirty work.
4: Mm. I think that's a long way of just saying that they took anybody off the streets that would be willing to do it.
3: <laughs> yeah, you didn't really need a, a specific skill set except for the willingness to be able to take on this job.
4: No because
3: fear. Yeah, because nobody really wanted to do it. The the average person, like if they weren't desperate for money or food, wouldn't do this job. They were like, ugh, I'm not eating someone else's sins I got my own sins to deal with here so you had to be really like on the bottom rung of society to be like yeah I've got nothing to lose at this point except starving to death so yeah I'll do I'll take on somebody else's sins
6: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step and you don't know what it is yet
4: So, you would think that maybe they would be treated with higher prestige or get paid more?
3: No, I feel like that back then, especially in Europe, there were a lot of these types of jobs that were necessary, quote unquote, evils, like jobs that needed to get done, but nobody really wanted the jobs and and those jobs did not have any social clout. Like these weren't jobs that anyone aspired to do, but they were necessary jobs. Okay, tools of the trade. What did the
4: average sin eater need to do this job? As you mentioned earlier, you need bread to soak up those sins, but you could also use wine or beer to be placed next to it, because you got to wash the bread down, right? Of
3: course. Sinny bread. Sinny bread <laughs> needs a
4: little lubrication going down. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And that wine and beer could soak up those sins just as well as the bread could.
5: It doesn't seem like there's that much information on sort of specific tools, But there very well may have been a bowl involved. It may or may not have been the family of the deceased that provided this bowl. Same thing with the stool for kneeling at the corpse. There may have been a stool that families kind of had, maybe for this purpose, maybe it was just a multi-purpose stool. It wouldn't be impossible for the person who was sin-eating to have these objects with them, but it also seems like the person who, ate the sins, did not really own much of anything of their own. So it's hard to say. It could have been, I feel like the most that they might be able to have with them would be maybe a bowl (laughs) or maybe something to drink the ale out of. (laughs) And this is a time when, you know, even small everyday objects like combs and, and articles of clothing were much more expensive relatively than they are today, right? So... People who are eating the sins of others probably own very little. And that's part of the appeal in a way. If you are this destitute, maybe if you're already a social pariah and you can't earn your keep anywhere, you may not need anything at all to start your career in sin eating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, you just need yourself and your own mortal soul.
3: Just come on, just bring your mortal soul. That's all. That's all you need. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah, you don't need a sin-eating kit or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Have a suitcase walking around.
3: <laughs> you don't need a sin-eating backpack or anything. Like you Just bring your mortal soul. That's it.
4: Okay, so now we're going to look at a typical day for the sin-eater. The
5: sin-eater would be hired, essentially, by the family. They would walk up to the door of the family of the deceased, and they would open the door and... Some accounts say that the family would put a grout, which was about I believe four pence (laughs) into the pocket of the sin eater or hand it to the sin eater. They would throw it in their pocket and the sin eater would walk in and be handed a piece of bread a cup of ale and there would also be some bread on the corpse of the recently deceased. The family would then bring often a really short stool that would be sat right in front of the the corpse Mm -hmm. and the sin eater would sit or kneel at the stool and sort of hover over the body and there would even be sometimes a saying or a prayer said and then he would eat the sins and at least one account of this prayer would be that the sin eater would announce that in part they would pawn part of their soul for the sins of the recently deceased and they would eat the bread they would sort of be there while other people in the room probably also paid attention and ate their own bread and ate you know any drink any refreshments at this at this wake essentially the senator would get up and be finished And some accounts have the sin eater, you know, they would just leave, and the account doesn't really tell you much about what that looks like. But in some, or at least one account that I found describing this, the family would then actually yell at the sin eater and drive the sin eater out, throwing things at the sin eater, just telling them to scram. So sometimes it sounds like they invite this person in, they absorb this very dangerous sin from their loved one and then they're kind of driven away and they don't stay for the rest of the ceremony and they have to leave and presumably they go home
3: oh man that sounds so mean (laughs) please come and eat our loved one's sins and now we're gonna throw things at you and yell at you get the hell out
4: well yeah because The sin eater has all these sins now, like, oh, man, we don't want you around.
3: It seems like such a bait and switch. It feels like a bait and switch. Hey, please come in and eat our loved one's sins. Ew, now you're sinful. Gross. Get out of my house.
4: At least the sin eater got paid up front.
3: (laughs) That is true. That is true. (laughs) I was thinking while she was describing it that actually one of the skills you have to have is a strong enough stomach to be able to eat like basically hovering over a dead body
4: <laughs> yeah i right? didn't think about that
3: i wouldn't feel particularly oh i need a snack right now if i'm like in direct <laughs> proximity of a dead body it wouldn't it's be got like, a
4: smell yeah. oh this is before embalming like the, the technology came a couple hundred years later really with <gasps> more advanced embalming so the other thing that stands out here is She mentioned that, Natalie mentioned that they were paid four English pence at one ceremony. I found another documented case of them getting paid six pence. Six pence, none the richer. Obscure reference there. But yeah, (laughs) that's the equivalent of two or three dollars in today's money is what they got paid for doing this. Two or three American dollars for those of you not uh, in the United States. (laughs) So again, it shows you how desperate they were like it and both sides were desperate it was a win-win
3: it was a slim win-win it was not a big win it was a small win i would say for both sides but also i totally take it back at the beginning in the intro when i said oh this is an easy job this was not an easy job if you had to eat bread over a decomposing corpse for two bucks yikes
4: yeah I, I would imagine that many beggars would just continue just begging. They'd probably get more money e- more easily that way. I'm preaching to
6: somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
2: Okay, so Matt,
3: earlier we were saying that this was Protestant and Catholic tradition, but you also mentioned that maybe there was like a pagan tradition involved as well?
4: Yeah, I found there were accounts of some pagans doing this hundreds of years before Christians were doing this. And, well, Christians notoriously have stolen many pagan traditions, so that's no surprise. But also I I ran across nobles who used to give food to the poor before a funeral in exchange for prayers on behalf of their recently deceased loved ones. In addition to pagan tradition, this was also in Jewish tradition.
3: Oh, yeah. Like in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice a goat, right? Burn a goat as an offering. In essence, the goat was the one that ate your sins and then they would sacrifice the goat.
4: There were actually two goats. Yeah, one of them would be sacrificed and one would not. They would actually let that other goat escape into the wilderness. And that goat had the sins of the deceased with it. So they were like, okay, get out of here with the sins of the deceased. We don't want to see you again. And so apparently the the term scapegoat, that's how that originated.
3: Oh, no way. (laughs) Literally the escaped goat. Yeah. With the sins.
4: <laughs> I learned something new today.
3: I learned something from you. That's interesting.
4: Are you familiar with indulgences?
3: I don't. I am not familiar with indulgences. Is this a Catholic thing?
4: It is. Yeah. So you may have heard of Martin Luther and uh, the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So that was a big complaint that he had. One of his 95 complaints of the Catholic Church was that some of this indulgence money was going to things that were just like enriching the church, not helping the poor.
3: We've talked about this a little bit in past episodes, but like the Catholic Church kind of was notorious back in the day of, hey, give us a little money and it's easier for you to get into heaven. Or, hey, give us one of your children to work to be an altar boy and it'll ease your way into heaven. There were a lot of like sh- <laughs> weird shortcuts to get into heaven, according to the Catholic Church.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah and there's a lot of emphasis on souls. Have you seen the movie Coco, the Pixar movie? I have. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, one of my all-time favorite films. Yes, but yeah, very good. that you actually learn a lot about All Souls Day in that film, which is a very important Catholic holiday, and actually in some traditions there there have been Catholics who have piled heaps of cakes on top of caskets or gravestones to honor the dead, and these cakes again like Maybe you can soak up the sins <laughs> when you do that. But the thing is, what's weird is like the Catholic Church, they talk trash about sin eaters. They never officially sanctioned any sin eating. They th- thought it was blasphemy. Really? It was, it was sacrilegious. Yeah. So.
3: <gasps> oh, that's interesting. So this was like a rogue practice by the general populace?
4: Yeah. and And actually, it, it was... More common with Protestants for that reason, because the Catholic Church was like, no, we don't do that. We have priests, okay?
3: Ha, very interesting.
4: All Souls Day is November 2nd, November 1st is All Saints Day, and Halloween is October 31st. So those three days all have this tradition of cakes, these cakes I've mentioned, and actually the origin of trick-or-treating, where kids go around asking for candy it started out with them going around asking for cakes so they could eat these cakes, uh, so they could eat these sins.
3: What? What? Oh, man. So when I buy a 20-pound bag of Snickers <laughs> to allegedly give away on October 31st-
4: Allegedly, that yeah.
3: Allegedly. <laughs> it it all ties. And then on November 2nd, I'm like surrounded by 50 wrappers of Snickers bars <laughs> on my couch. That is all related to sin eating. Whoa, everything comes full circle. So
5: one of the last recorded sin eaters was a man named Richard Munslow. And he was born in 1832. He died in 1906. And when he was performing sin eating, he took this on on his own as a way to process his own grief because three of his children passed away and he couldn't um, express or handle his grief in any other way except to try to go from funeral to funeral, participating in the grief of others. Mm -hmm. And so this was, you know, an example of it was a man performing sin eating at the time. It was apparently very uncommon, if not, you know, almost extinct Um, by the time he started doing this himself, but he clearly knew it existed, uh, and he knew how to sort of approach people, and people did use his services. So uh, one of the, you know, very real-life, you know, actual names that we have for somebody that was a sin-eater is this Richard Munslow, and he was a man. So... (laughs) Basically, we only have examples, solid examples of men that I've seen so far. Since mm-hmm. eating.
3: Interesting. That's interesting because I was going to say late 1800s, that seems quite late, but mm-hmm. it seems like this guy was rogue. Like he took it up upon himself. He, it wasn't like this was a thing that was rampant in the 1800s. This is you know, one single man who was processing his family tragedy in this way many he reached out to other people who had family tragedy and they were all were like sure yeah you can come over and grieve with us and eat this bread if you want so that's good that was a, an outlet for him to express his grief but also it seems like maybe the profession had died out long before he was into it
4: this may be a good opportunity to look at why there are no more sin eaters today
3: no one ever says
5: you know why they don't have it anymore <laughs> They talk about it with wonder about, you know, when people did this. I don't think there's a single reason. It could be that people started regarding the role of the clergy, of, you know, their church of choice as the ones that take care of all of that and that, you know, their sort of social role in death sort of grew to encompass all aspects of it and sin-eating wasn't as necessary It could be that people stopped wanting to sacrifice their own soul for others, but it also could be that the view that another person could take on your own sins, that may have sort of dwindled, especially as different forms of Protestantism sort of became more and more known and popular. Like I said earlier, this was certainly not something that churches told people to do. It was not something that was condoned. It was not something that was part of the Bible. And so especially when you get into Protestant religions where people are reading the Bible more, you're not going to use these practices that aren't condoned.
3: I think around this time, there was probably the development of a more kinder, gentler form of Protestant <laughs> Protestantism. Yes. Whereas like back in the day during those early times, especially the medieval times, like it was like people were afraid for their mortal soul. Like mm-hmm. people were like, I am going to go to hell and there's fire there and brimstone and it's going to be horrible. And they were doing all kinds of weird things to try to get out of that. Whereas I think the the evolution of Protestantism especially is it's not as black and white or cut and dry and it's not as oh you're doomed to this forever hell (laughs) like you know the idea of like fire and brimstone it just kind of like wasn't as hard
4: i think it started with the second great awakening which was the late 1700s and early 1800s which was you see all these brand new Protestant denominations that spring up. And like you were saying, a lot of them were more like, oh, Jesus is your friend. Focusing more on the New Testament stuff. And why is it some random dude off the street that you're getting in here to to take care of the, the sin issues? So both of those things, I think, yeah, were contributed to the decline of this profession.
3: Hey, listeners, tell us on Twitter if you had to eat sins what food would go best in you holding your sins? If you would pick up bread, would it be a rye bread for your sins or would you go with a lobster roll full of sins or deviled eggs? Am I right? <laughs> Big thank you to listener Wendy Goldberg who actually suggested this topic.
4: If any listeners out there have an idea on future jobsolete episodes, tweet us at jobsolete pod. Jobs Elite is produced for iHeartRadio by Zealot Manufacturing Hand Forge Podcast for you.
3: It's hosted by us, Helen Hong, that's me, and Matt Beat.
4: That's me. The show was conceived and produced by Steve Zimarki, Anthony Savini, and Jason Elliott.
3: Our editor is Tommy Nichol.
4: Our researcher is Amelia Polka.
3: Our production coordinator is Angie Haimes.
4: And theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder.
3: A special thanks to our iHeartRadio team, Katrina Norvell, Nikki Etor, Ali Cantor, Carrie Lieberman, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, and Bob Pittman.
2: It's been almost 3000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's talk about myths baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources, so you don't have to listen to "Let's Talk About Myths, Baby" on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been! As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast Climbing in Heels is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist.